going to start reading in verse 18 down to verse 29 of Romans chapter 9. Therefore he hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will harden. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why dost thou yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made us thus? Hast not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for, to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared on the glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Osa, I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which are not my not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall be there they shall be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish his, the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And Isaiah said before, Except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had seen been as Sodom and been as like, sorry, been made like unto Gomorrah. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we thank you this morning uh, for your word. We do pray that, Lord, you'd give us wisdom now as we study together. Uh, just guide me, I pray, as I present your word. We pray that today we might get a handle on this passage. We might see its truths. That, Father, we might gain a blessing from it and that you'd go before us as we study together, Father. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you we can read it, we can study it. We do pray now that the Spirit of God would give us understanding that you might receive all the praise and all the glory, which we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, we have revealed to us a biblical principle. And that biblical principle was that God has every right to choose who he will use and who he will bless and that God chooses those who choose him, and he rejects those who reject him. God's choosing of Romans 9, 1 through 13 brought up in the mind of the Apostle Paul some interesting questions. The first question, which we saw last time we were in the book of Romans, which is over a month ago, but the last time in the book of Romans, the first question was, if God chooses those who choose him and rejects those who reject him, is there unrighteousness with God? And then in Romans 9.14, in answering the question, Paul established the biblical principle that God has the right to choose because he is God. And that God has the right to decide the grounds on which he will make that choice. Now today in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, Paul anticipated another related question. And that question is this, is God therefore unjust? And in Romans 9, 19 through 29, Paul gives the answer to this question, is God therefore unjust? 
So firstly, look with me this morning at the protest. The protest in verse 19 through 21. He says in verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why dost thou find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Now to understand this, you've got to read verse 18 a little bit to get the context of what he's saying in verse 19. He says this, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will harden. Uh, whom he will, he will harden. Thou wilt then say unto me, Why dost thou find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Effectively what he asks in verses 18 and 19 is this, If God hardens people's hearts, how can he judge them as sinners? Since no one can resist God's sovereign will. Or to put it another way, if God shows mercy on whom he will show mercy and hardens whom he will harden, then someone might get the wrong idea. That God's will is irresistible. And if God's will is irresistible, how then can God find fault with a person? Well, these are reasonable questions. If God's will is irresistible, how can God find fault? And they deserve an answer. So what is the answer? Well, know what he says in verse 19. He starts out by saying this, Thou wilt say unto me. The word thou there suggests that the question, why doth he find fault? Because that's the question he asks, why doth he yet find fault? That the question is based upon a false premise. He says, you say this. This is what you say. Okay? This is not what the truth is, but this is what you say. This is what you're about to ask me. Paul anticipates the questions coming. He says, this is what you say. But what you're saying is built upon a premise that's faulty. The premise is this. For who hath resisted his will? That's your premise. For who hath resisted his will? And that premise is wrong. It's wrong because who has resisted his will is made on the premise of the suggestion that God's will is irresistible. And here is where the problem lies in this whole question about is God unjust being asked in this section of Romans chapter 9. Because the whole problem rests in this premise, this question of God's will being irresistible. The whole problem with the question of God's will is not irresistible. The fact is that God has given every one of us the ability to resist his will. We have a free will. There's nothing irresistible about the will of God in that sense. And we prove it almost every day. I mean, think of Eve in the Garden of Eden. She was told not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's what she was told. That was God's will for Adam and Eve. But what did Eve do? She ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She disobeyed the will of God. God's will was not irresistible for her. Equally, is it not true that God's will for each and every one of us, that you and I will be holy as he is holy? But I wonder, did anybody this week, did any of you or I this week, did we resist the command to be holy as he is holy sometime this week? I guarantee you that some of us did. That the will of God was not indeed irresistible in our lives. You know, the scripture furnishes for us 
example after example where people resisted the will of God. So the premise of the question of Romans 9.19 is faulty because man has a free will. Let me put it this way. If God's will is irresistible, if this premise is correct, then it's God's fault that people go to hell. But we know that people are going to hell not because God's will is irresistible, but because they chose not to believe in Jesus Christ. Because God's word clearly teaches, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So people are going to hell not because God's will is irresistible, but because they resisted the will of God. What's God's will for the unsaved? He is not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. That is God's will. But mankind resists his will and end up in hell. So the premise of the question, is God unjust, that God's will is irresistible, therefore God is unjust, is faulty for man of free will. Now Paul goes on in verse, in verse 20, 21 to show us again just how just God is. In other words, God is never unfair. And Paul answered the question of God's seeming injustice by reminding us that we have been created by him. And those of us who have been created have no right to question our creator. Look at verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that is formed, why, uh, formed it, <coughs> excuse me, why hast thou made us? Thus, God created us. Therefore, why are we questioning God's wisdom? Why then, what right have we got to question God when he makes these decisions? God has the right to do with you and I, his creation, as he pleases. Now, Paul affirms this by using an illustration, the illustration of the potter working on a wheel with a lump of clay, verse 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? So here's the potter. He's got one lump of clay, and he puts it on the, the wheel. But before he does that, he splits it into two, and he makes of that one lump of clay one vessel to honor and one vessel to dishonor. Now, that sounds like God makes one for heaven and one for hell. Okay, that's what you think it, some people think it means here. You've got to understand a little bit here. First of all, he's not talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about a potter with clay. Okay, that's the illustration. Okay, so he's saying a potter has every right to take his lump of clay, divide it in two, and make a vessel of honor, the vessel of dishonor. But you've also got to understand, so he's talking about clay and a potter. Okay, not about human beings, heaven and hell, all right? That's what the illustration is. But also, you need to understand what he means by vessel of honor and dishonor. Okay? The vessel of honor means that he makes a vessel that is like bone china. It's the best. You bring out your bone china at those special occasions, you know, when great-grandma comes over, you know, or great-aunt comes over, or somebody special turns up. You bring out the bone china, that's the vessel of honor. But when you get up for breakfast in the morning, you pull out the normal stuff. That's the vessel of dishonor. There's nothing 
dishonorable about the vessel. It's just that it's not of the same value. It's not used for the same purpose as the other vessels. They're both valuable. They're both important. But one has a different purpose than the other. And all Paul is saying here in this part of the clay is that God has a right to choose the purpose for which we are created. As believers, God has a right to choose what he wants us to do. That's his choice. If God wants you to be a doctor, that's God's choice. If God wants you to be a garbage collector, that's God's choice. If God wants you to be a builder, that's God's choice. If God wants you to be a missionary, that's God's choice. If God wants you to be a pastor, that's God's choice. God has every right to choose what he does with his clay. It doesn't mean that one part, part, of, clay, part of clay is less important to God than another part of clay. It's a bit like that in Corinthians where it talks about the, the church being a body and there's different parts of the body. There's the hands and the ears and there's the mouth. But then there's the inner parts of the body, the liver and the lung and the kidneys and the, the lesser parts. There's things that you can't see, people within the church, that they are going about God's business but nobody, there's no fanfare for them. And then there's others out there who are doing God's business that people can see, the missionaries, etc. It doesn't make them any less important. It doesn't make them any less significant. It simply means that God had a purpose for them. And they're fitted for that purpose. They're made for that purpose. That's the point here. The apostle's getting at. So the potter has every right to do with his clay as he pleases. So Paul asks the rhetorical question here in verse 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay? The word power means he has the right to do something. I mean, it's a logical question. If the potter has his clay, doesn't he have a right to do with what he pleases? Well, of course he does. And God has the same right that any creator has over his creation. Therefore, if God declares that we have an eternal responsibility before him, then it is so. If God says, okay, all my creation... I have given you a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be saved. You don't reject Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be damned. That's God's choice. He has every right to make a decision about his clay to determine the clay. So if God gives an eternal responsibility to us, then he has every right to do so. He's the creator. The point is, or the biblical principle is this, that there are very definite consequences for the decisions we make. In, in life, whether we choose Christ or reject Christ, it has a consequence. Whether we choose God's will or reject God's will, it's a consequence. God has a will. He wants all to be saved, and he wants all believers to live holy as he is holy. The choice is ours. But there are consequences to that choice. You can't expect to disobey God's will and not then suffer the consequence of that disobedience. For instance, natural law decrees that if someone drinks poison, they will die. There is a consequence of the action. You can drink poison if you want, but you will die. If you jump in front of a speeding car, then you'll be killed or injured. You can jump in front of a speeding car, nobody's stopping you, but don't expect to get away unscathed. 
There is a consequence to your action. Or the experience is the result of the act. Everyone who is going to be in eternity separate from God in the lake of fire, they're there because of their actions. They chose to reject Christ. God is not unjust. Every believer who misses out on the blessings that God has for them are responsible for their behavior. God is not unjust because he rewards one, doesn't reward the other. He rewards the obedient and doesn't reward the disobedient. The experience is the result of the act. So if people persist in their sin and will not turn to Christ, divine law decrees that they'll suffer destruction. It's the consequence of disobedience, not God's injustice. As God, he has the sovereign right to decree what will happen that which is created, which is verse 20. He has the right, according to verse 21, to do what he will with that which is created. And you know, there's a scene in the example previously in chapter 9, the example of Israel and Pharaoh during the Passover. Israel believed God and were delivered. God made them vessels of mercy. Pharaoh chose to despise God's word, so the Lord destroyed him. He was made a vessel of wrath, but it was his choice. Israel was a vessel of mercy, for they chose God's will. Pharaoh was a vessel of uh, of, uh, wrath because he chose to disobey God's will. So that is the the protest, is God unjust? But secondly, Paul reveals God's purpose in the illustration of the pottery. He goes a bit further. In verses 22 to 24, he gives us the purpose. Paul asks a question in verse 22. He says this, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. What if? Now he's referring back to verses 18 and 19, okay? This, this passage whereby ask about God's injustice and ask about the pot and the clay. And he says, what if? What if? God wanted to show his wrath to sinners, which they deserve, and wanted to make known his power for everyone to see, what if God then does not act immediately and judge them? What if? Does that make God unjust? If God holds off his judgment of sinners because he has an ultimate purpose in mind, a greater purpose in mind, does that make God unjust? For instance, as with Pharaoh, Pharaoh was fitted for destruction. God already knew the moment that Pharaoh made, his, made first objection to Moses and letting the people go, God already knew that Moses, Pharaoh was going to do that. In fact, God already knew Pharaoh's consequence. He was fitted for destruction. God knew where Pharaoh was going. But by much long suffering, God endured him. And the reason why God did not judge Pharaoh immediately was because God wanted to reveal his wrath and his power. Now, does that make God unjust? 
Well, of course not, because God often has a greater purpose in mind when he does what he does. When God acts or God does not act, God has a greater purpose in mind for his actions. We often can't see that purpose. And you and I look at something, we think, boy, that's unjust. Why is God not acting? We look around the world and we see all the wickedness and the sin of people and we think, why is God not acting? It surprises us that God doesn't do something about it. Well, because God has a greater purpose in mind. It's the same with Egypt. Music put it this way. He said, if God chooses to glorify himself through letting people go their own way and letting them righteously receive his wrath so as to make his power known, who can oppose it? Who are we to question God's actions when he doesn't judge immediately but holds off judgment? Who are we to question that? Who are we to question God's actions when God reveals his power to those who he loves through the actions of the unsaved? Who are we? See, God is not just, uh, God is just. He does what he does to ensure he gets the glory. And notice a couple of words here. In verse 20, it says, what if God willing to show his wrath? The word willing here means choosing, desiring. God was desiring to show his wrath. Okay, there's no question about God's desire to show his wrath. God wants to show his wrath. He desires to show his wrath against rebellion. And God desires to make his power known. Notice what it says there. He uh, desired to show his wrath, and desires to make his power known. That's what he wants to do. But what God did was he patiently bore the wickedness of unbelievers. He patiently, he bore patiently with unbelievers with vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Why? That he might get the glory. God is long-suffering to vessels of wrath so that he might get the glory. In other words, God sometimes is long-suffering so that they might get saved. God delays his judgment so that all men might know that he's God. And that's the point of verse 22 and 23. Look at verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which are therefore prepared unto glory. God is long-suffering to the unrighteous sometimes because God wants to ensure that when the wrath falls, people know it's God's wrath that's happening. It's God that's judging. It's not just some mishap of freak of nature. It's God who's acting. So that people stand in awe of God for he's a God of judgment. But also that the vessels of honor, those who are vessels of mercy might also receive a blessing. Just like Pharaoh, he didn't bring the telling blow until the tenth plague. By that time, by the time he gets to the tenth plague, every Egyptian was afraid of the God of Israel. Remember that? When they were ready to leave, the Egyptians were giving them everything they could take with them. Here, have my gold. Here, have this, have that. They left with, with uh, 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 wagon loads of goods out of Egypt because the Egyptians just wanted them to go and they were paying them to leave. By the time the tenth plague came, the Egyptians were afraid of the God of Israel. 
And so by the long suffering of the vessels of wrath, God was able to show his glory to the vessel of mercy, wasn't he? They received abundant blessings. Every Jew leaving Egypt knew God was great. See, if God had acted earlier, if, he, if the people had been let go in the first place, and God had judged Pharaoh, some in Egypt would have thought, not much of it. And some of the Jews would not have appreciated the significance of the Exodus. But get to the tenth place where Israel has seen God pour out judgment upon the Egyptians, and the land of Goshen where they lived was relatively unaffected by many of the plagues. And when they've placed the blood on the doorpost, the door lintel, and the angel of death has passed over, and there's weeping and wailing throughout Egypt as the firstborn dies of those that didn't apply the blood, and in the house of every believer who has placed the blood, there was no death. It was glorious. They could see God's hand. So this is 21, 22 and 23 are true. Because he has made his power known by enduring the long suffering of the vessel of wrath and destruction so that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessel of mercy, which is prepared under glory. They were always going to receive God's glory, going to receive God's blessing because he wanted to get the glory. But by waiting until 10 plagues, he got much more of the glory. See, they knew the riches of his glory. Now that God also, in verse 23, it says this, it says that God prepared vessels for mercy, of mercy for glory. In verse, the end of the verse there, he says, which he had before prepared unto glory. But in the preceding verse, verse 22, he doesn't say he prepared them, it says this. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured? with much long suffering, the vessel of wrath fitted for destruction. He doesn't say that he prepared them. He says he endured them with long suffering. Then he says they were fitted for destruction. Now, the word fitted here doesn't suggest that God made Pharaoh a vessel for wrath. That's why the translators made sure that they said fitted for destruction. It's important because, you see, the Greek word here means fitted himself for destruction. Okay? God didn't prepare him for destruction. God endured him, but he fitted himself for destruction. Pharaoh at any time in those ten plagues could have said, praise God. I believe in the God of heaven. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did, remember? In Daniel, he acknowledged the God of heaven and God saved him. If Pharaoh had said, I believe, God had saved him, he would have saved them from all the plagues, but Pharaoh fitted himself for destruction by his continual willingness to disobey God, his willingness to have a hardened heart. He was fitting himself for destruction. God prepares men for glory. That's verse 20, 23. When by faith we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when you and I accept his will and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as saved, he prepares us for glory, doesn't he? Isn't that John chapter 14? God's preparing a place for us and he's also preparing us for the place. 
God prepares men for glory, but sinners prepare themselves for judgment. And that's such an important understanding here. They have been destroyed because of their unbelief. In Moses and Israel, God revealed the riches of his mercy. In Pharaoh and Egypt, he revealed his power and his wrath. And since neither deserved any mercy, God cannot be charged with injustice. Israel didn't deserve God's mercy. They didn't deserve to be vessels of mercy. And Pharaoh didn't deserve to be vessels of mercy. They deserved to be vessels of destruction because vessel wrath, because they of their own heart fitted themselves for destruction. God's grace and mercy saved Israel. And they are saved because they placed the blood on the door into the doorpost. They believed in God. Pharaoh and Egypt were destroyed because they disbelieved in God. They rejected him. Now, you not even remember the point that Paul's trying to make in this chapter is that he wants to vindicate the Lord to show that it's not unrighteous in his dealings with the nation of Israel. He wants them to understand that God has not reneged on his promise to Israel when he opened the door to the Gentiles. He wants them to understand that uh, the promises that he made to Israel will eventually come to pass for those who are true Israel. But if God wants to show mercy to the Gentiles as well as the Jews, that's his business. And that's verse 24. Even us whom we are called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. In the same way, as God wants to show his power and his mercy to the Jews, to those that believe, God also wants to do that to the Gentiles who believe, and that does not make God unjust. There is no injustice with God. You see, God will save whosoever believes. And that's the point. He's saying, listen, Israel was chosen in Egypt because they believed. Pharaoh was rejected in Egypt because he didn't believe. The Gentiles, I will save whosoever will believe. That doesn't make me unjust. And I will reject the Jews who are not believing. That doesn't make him unjust. Because remember what's happened here? Israel's been rejected. The church has been established. Now God is creating a new body of Jew and Gentile in the church. Israel has been laid aside so that Gentiles can be grafted in. And they're waiting the seven years of tribulation to restart their calendar. There's a 2,000 year plus hiatus between the two. And the Jews here at the beginning of the, early, of the church are questioning, is God unjust? Turning from us to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, no, of course not. God has every right to do with his play what he wants to do. And if you want to be a disobedient like Pharaoh, you will be fitting yourself for destruction. But if you want to be saved like Israel, then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gentiles believe. The Jews are rejecting. You're fitting yourself for destruction. God's not unjust. They're believing. They're preparing themselves. For, God's preparing them for glory. God is not unjust. Just understand that. That there is no injustice with God. Believers today are by God's grace vessels of mercy, which is preparing us for glory. 
That reminds us, doesn't it, of Romans 8? Go back there just quickly. Romans 8, 29 and 30. It says this, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he justified, and whom he justified, them he glorified. We are vessels of mercy who God is preparing for glory because we're saved by grace. Paul then turns to the Old Testament to show that this was foretold, and we see lastly the prophecy. The prophecy. The protest, the purpose, the prophecy. Verses 25 to 29. Verse 25 says, And as he saith also in Osi, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which are not beloved. And it should come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall be, uh, sorry, there shall they be called the children of the living God. In Romans 9, 25 and 26, O.C. is Hosea, the prophet. And this is a quote from Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, and Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23. And this is a prophecy of how God is going to adopt the people who are not his ordinary people. That's what he says in verse 25. I will call them my people, would not my people and her beloved, which are not beloved. He's going to call a people which are not his people. He's going to adopt the people that are not his people. And his people, of course, were Israel. But because of Israel's idolatry, because of Israel's disobedience to the Lord, through the prophet Hosea, God foretells that he's going to turn to the Gentiles. Verse 26. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. We are called the children of the living God, aren't we? John 1 12 tells us that. As many as received him, them gave you power to become the sons of God. You and I are the children of God. As Gentiles, we have this blessed privilege. We are not a people that were his people, but you and I have been saved. We were not his beloved, but we've been saved by grace, by faith, in Jesus Christ. And the wonderful truth is that even though we were not his people, you and I have been called his children. That's the blessing we receive. You know, the downside for Israel in their rejection is they were fitting themselves for disobedience, fitting themselves for destruction. But the upside for you and I is that you and I can be saved and be members of the church through faith in Jesus Christ. So what Paul said in verse 24, which is even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles, what he said in verse 24 has happened. And God is not unjust, because he always acts righteously. In saving the Gentiles, he's acting according to his will. And his will is, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's will. It's not irresistible, but it's God's will. The Jews resisted the will of God and fitted themselves with destruction. Gentiles were believing the Lord Jesus Christ, accepting the will of God, 
and we've been prepared for glory. That does not make God unjust. That just makes God a God of mercy and grace. Now, having said that, Paul returns to the subject of Israel. Because the point of Romans 9 is not the Gentiles, by the way. The point of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is Israel. And so he returns to Israel. And God does have a plan for Israel. But what they need to understand is that God's plan for Israel only has to do with believing Israel. Now remember, every Jew believed that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were okay. What they didn't understand was that Abraham was who he was by faith. And what they didn't understand was for them to be part of true Israel, they had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to be saved by faith. And they need to understand this. They need to understand that the reason why they've been rejected is not because God doesn't have a plan for Israel. It's only that God has a plan for believing Israel. See, because of Israel's general rejection of Jesus Christ the Messiah, only a small number, a remnant, will inherit the blessings. Look in verse 27. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 10, and verses 10 to 23 actually, but Isaiah chapter 10. When it comes to the last days, and it's time for the Lord to return, only a few, only a remnant will be saved on earth to receive the physical promises. That's what he's saying here. Even though Israel will be as the sand of the sea, and they are, when Jesus Christ returns, only a remnant will be alive and saved to receive their king. Before Christ comes during the tribulation, Israel will suffer. During that time, the unbelieving and the disobedient of Israel will surely die. This is what Paul is referring to in Romans 9, 28 and 29, where he says this. He says, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah saith before, except the Lord of Sebioth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom, and he made like unto Gomorrah. This is Isaiah 20. Eight, sorry, Isaiah 28, verses 20 to 22. The work that God will finish, in verse 28, says this, for he will finish the work. The work that he will finish is the tribulation. And the Bible tells us here that God will cut short the tribulation, and it says in verse 28, for the work, for he will finish the work, but cut it short in righteousness, because the short work will the Lord make upon the earth. God will cut the tribulation short, and the measure of where he will cut it short is righteousness. Okay? That's what it says there. He will cut it short in righteousness. And if he doesn't cut it short, no one in Israel would be saved. Look in verse 29. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord Sebioth 
and that means he's the warrior king, except the warrior king, the Lord Sevier, had left us a seed, we've been a Sodom, been like and Gomorrah. If God does not cut the tribulation short, they'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah, don't we? It was totally wiped off the face of the earth. Today you cannot see any remnants of Sodom and Gomorrah there under, uh, you know, acres of, of sand and other things. You can't find Sodom and Gomorrah. It's gone. If God does not cut the tribulation short, they would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. There would not be a Jew left on earth. God is not unjust. God's going to act in righteousness. And the tribulation period, the purpose of the tribulation is to bring Israel to their knees. This is the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the time when the church is not here because God's dealing with Israel and he wants them to bring them to their knees so that they cry out to God and they cry out for deliverance and God will send them their Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they'll look upon him whom they have pierced. And God in his justice is going to bring judgment upon Israel for seven years so that they might be saved. God is not unjust, but he will save a remnant. Those who believe. Romans 9.29 is a quote from Isaiah 1.9, the phrase Sabaoth. And I said it means host. He's the warrior king. Jesus Christ is going to come back as the warrior king, isn't he? He's going to come back riding on a horse with, a, with a, his vesture dipped in blood, with a sword going forth out of his mouth, and he will wreak havoc upon the armies of the world to deliver Israel, the warrior king. That's what they're looking for. That's what the Jews have been looking for in the Roman period, isn't it? They wanted the warrior king to come and overthrow Rome. That's why they were happy to reject Christ and have him crucified because they didn't see him as the warrior king. But he's coming back to deliver them. God will keep his promise to Israel just because right now Israel's been set aside and the church has been enacted and Jew and Gentile by faith can be part of that body which is the body of Christ. Does not mean that God does not have a purpose for greater Israel. He does, but they're waiting for that day. That's the tribulation. And in that day, God will save his remnant. When the, when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom, only the righteous in Israel, the believing Jews, will meet Messiah. Only vessels of honor will enter. The conclusion of Paul is that God is sovereign. That God has a right to do with Israel or whomever he chooses. And we must always remember that God chooses choice is always based on something. Remember that. God chooses, uh, God's choice rather, is always based on something. It's never just random. And when he chooses vessels for honor, it's based upon their obedience. And when he chooses vessels of dishonor, it's based upon their disobedience. God is never unjust. People who are vessels of dishonor, vessels of wrath, are there because they fit themselves for destruction. The vessels of honor, the vessels of mercy, are there because they, they have received Jesus Christ as their Savior and God's preparing them for glory. You know, I must remember that when God displays his judgment, it's more than just. 
He is merciful. God is not unjust because of his choice or which vessel to honor because it has to do with obedience or disobedience. God will always honor those who honor him. For that ensures that he will get the glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the book of Romans. Lord God, we do pray that this passage would have been a blessing to hearts today. An encouragement, Father God, that Lord, uh, we are the, the vessels of mercy. Not because we deserve it. But because of God's grace. Lord God, we do pray that you help us to ever remember that, that God is always just, that he's never unjust, that God's dealing with man is always according to his purpose. And sometimes when God delays his justice, it's so that he might get the glory, and so that more vessels of mercy might be revealed with faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, commend your word to our hearts this day, we pray in Jesus' name.